the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we are here every weekday at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word, KSLR, to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions or even just life questions, sing, something that might be going on in your, in your life right now. We'll do the best that we can to direct you to what the Bible says about how we should respond. Here's a phone number for our live calls. It's 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-5757, 630-KSLR. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send your questions in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. I remind you every weekday that if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of the KSLR mobile app, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, for us here at Calvary Chapel, because it's Wednesday, it's Old Testament Bible study night. Tonight, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 28. We've got just a few more chapters in 1 Samuel, and we're going to go right on through 2 Samuel, setting the life of David. Uh, tomorrow, because tonight is Wednesday, it's Thursday. That means Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the show. So, ladies, it's your day. If there's anything that Paula can help you with or encourage you through, um, tomorrow is the best day to call. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Anonymous. we got three Anonymous questions to start off today. Uh, this one says, who is Cain's wife? One of the things we have to remember about the book of Genesis is it doesn't include all of the information. The chronology is not one day, then the next day, then the next day. Uh, in the course of time, lots and lots and lots of people were born. So Cain had a lot of women to choose from. When we find Cain's wife appearing suddenly on the scene, we have a tendency to think that, well, it's only Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Well, no. By the time they were expelled, a lot of time passes by. We don't know uh, how old Cain and Abel were at the time that uh, Cain murdered Abel. Um, We don't know how old Adam and Eve were when they had the babies. So what we can understand, I think, pretty um, simply is that there were lots and lots and lots of people. Now, there's a couple of things that we have to understand. First, this was a world that was just barely tainted by sin. You know, you go through the book of Genesis and people are living five and six and seven and eight, even 900 years. Why? Because the effects of sin, the effects of the curse, uh, hadn't yet taken full effect. It's after the flood that people start dying um, at, at younger ages, and by that I mean hundreds and, and beyond. So um, the, the world was was um, not perfect, but we would look at it and say, wow, what a beautiful, beautiful world this was, even though it was after the fall. Well, there was a lot of time that elapsed. And there, the other thing is they would have been marrying cousins, sisters, 
Now, to us, that sounds gross. But remember, there was no law against it. And when God said, be fruitful and multiply, um, that's the way it was done by design. And there wouldn't be the the, the mental or emotional defects that were caused by um, incest or intermarriage, marriage within a family. So um, Cain's wife would have been a cousin, a, a, a distant cousin perhaps, or even a sister. And then they would have had kids. And remember, in 900 years or 500 years or anywhere in between, you can populate the world with a whole bunch of people in that short a time. So uh, his, we don't know who she was. We have no information about her, except that she was Mrs. Cain. And because we know Cain's character, um, we know that she would have had a difficult time. So I hope that helps, Anonymous. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Anonymous again from our email inbox. Where was Jesus for the three days between his death and resurrection? Um, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, we know that some of the time he was, um, oh, between the three days, I'm sorry, um, um, he would have descended, Ephesians chapter 4, to the lower parts of the earth where he would have proclaimed victory uh, over the enemy, over sin and death. Um but that doesn't mean that he spent all three days there. I, I, I think sometimes we forget that God lives outside of time and space. And when Jesus um, was in the tomb, um, and he left to go declare victory, we don't know what kind of form he was in. Again, he hadn't been resurrected yet. So part of the time, of course, he would have been in the tomb. But remember, God never stopped being. Jesus, the human, stopped. But Jesus, who is God, never stopped existing. And so in the spirit world, in the spirit realm, Jesus not only would have descended in lower parts of the earth, he would have maybe even visited heaven. Now, we know that he hadn't yet been to heaven in his physical body, because that's what he said uh, to Mary when she was holding on to him, do not hold on to me, for I'm not yet ascended to my Father and your Father. But in the spirit realm, Jesus never stopped existing as God. That's something that's really important for us to understand. We have a tendency to think, well, Jesus died. The human died. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. So there are mysteries, Anonymous, that we simply don't have all the answers to. We get just little bits and pieces. And the only thing I can say with any authority, uh, the authority of the Word, is that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. That's all we know. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app. This one is from Kirby. And this is more of a comment than a question. Kirby says, I wonder if Paul, as he wrote Romans 11.6, if he considered that in the midst of his works uh, of persecuting the church as Saul, that he had been, that he was then chosen by God. What a wonderful example of the grace of God over the works of man. Um, Kirby, without any question, without any question, um, Paul thought often about who he used to be. We have record of that uh, in in uh, in his epistles. First Corinthians. Think of what you were. Not many of you were noble, he says. Not many of you were good. We we were the foolish things, the, the wise, uh, the 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 weak things, the shameful things. And I know that throughout his ministry, Paul was never ever able to let go of that. And I mean that in a, in a positive sense. He he would call himself the chief of all sinners. So um, when he was persecuting the church, uh, having been chosen by God as an enemy of God is not just a wonderful example of the grace of God over the works of men. This is an example that God is never frustrated in pursuing those that he knows are going to be his. It's one of the reasons, Kirby, that when Jesus appeared to him, he said, Saul, Saul, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? In other words, you've been running from me, and I, I outran you. You've been persecuting me, but here I am. 
and over and over Saul of Tarsus would have wondered how he could have been so long. You know, Kirby, what I like thinking about more than uh, Paul sort of wallowing in the grace of God in, in, a, in, a, in a positive sense, you know, thinking that God is so faithful. I like to think about those first three days when he was led into Damascus and he couldn't see. God sent a man named Ananias to lay hands on him. Imagine what those three days were like. Holy terror, for sure. But at the same time, I, 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 I often think about this, I think they were the best three days of his life. You see, he really was zealous for God. He says that about himself, only his zeal wasn't based in knowledge. He understood he was proud. He understood he was defiant. But finally, he had the answers. Can you imagine, for the first time in his life, his heart was at peace? He'd seen the risen Christ. So glorious was the vision that it blinded him. But nonetheless, for those three days, his prayers would mean something before they were just ritual, his worship of God, an understanding of who he was. Remember, he thought himself faultless in regards to righteousness. And all of a sudden, in the darkness of the night, though blind, he could suddenly see. And that is so thrilling to me to think about because, well, I wasn't the Apostle Paul. I wasn't Saul of Tarsus in my persecution of Jesus. I was an enemy of God. And one day overnight, just instantly, I could see. And Kirby, I think about that a whole lot, so I know the Apostle Paul did as well. Thank you for the question. Let's go to Tanya from San Leandro. Thank you, Tanya, for calling. Good to hear from you again today. Tanya, are you there? Tanya? We must have a connection issue. So, uh, Tanya, if you can hear us, we can hear you. So just keep holding until they straighten out the problem. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We will find out what happened to Tanya in just a moment. Let me go to another question. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, I watched your Sunday message online and heard you say that Old Testament promises don't apply to us. Promises like Jeremiah 29.11. How can you say that and still claim to believe in the Bible? Well, anonymous, one of the things that we have to do, and you're right, I, I, I use that one very specifically, and I even had some people come up after service. They were so disappointed. You mean that's not a promise for me? Well, the principle in the promise is for you. As New Testament Christians, that principle. But we who are New Testament Christians have such much greater and glorious promises. We're studying in the book of Romans. That's when it came up. And even the promises that we have in, in just chapter 8 of the book of Romans. The end of chapter 7. Who can rescue me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Those promises are infinitely better than the promises that God gave to Jeremiah. You see, part of being a student of our Bibles is understanding how to interpret them. And what God said to Jeremiah had a specific context. It was delivered at a time of great heartbreak, great calamity for the people of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar had completely devastated the city. Three separate captivities where Israel's best and brightest were taken away into captivity into Babylon. And it would have looked, if you were in Jerusalem, as Jeremiah was. Now remember, Ezekiel's a contemporary, but he was in Babylon. And if you can imagine, for just a moment, it would have looked to Jeremiah and to everybody else left in Jerusalem, 
as small a number as that was, like God had failed in his promises. You promised the Messiah. You promised the Deliverer. You promised that we would be here forever, that you would always have a descendant seated on the throne of David. And it would look like the promises had all failed, and that's the context of the promise to Jeremiah. So for us to claim that promise is bad interpretation. It's bad hermeneutics. So what we do is we understand the the principle of the promise. God has plans for us. And he knows those plans. They're plans to bless us. And yet when we take that promise, there's another one that I hear every national day of prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear their prayers. But that's not for us either. That's specifically for Israel. And if we don't interpret our Bibles correctly, we lose all of the meaning. So again, hold on to the wonderful promise. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. There's a promise. Another New Testament promise. When you are faithless, he is faithful. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's all we need to hold on to, Anonymous. So learn to study your Bible a little bit. You will be blessed. I think we've got Tanya back on now. Tanya, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So I call you with a heavy heart today, and it's one of the topics that you've discussed um, before, and and I'm asking for this prayer uh, for a family that will will remain anonymous. Um, They have an 11-year-old daughter, and the mother discovered that the daughter was looking at inappropriate uh, websites, uh, adult-natured, on cell phones and iPads. And uh, I know you've spoken about, um, you know, that really is giving your child pretty much a loaded gun when it comes Mm -hmm. to the Internet. And I'd like to know, Pastor, um, you know, she's she's talking about getting some psychological help for the child. I mean, the child has said it's on her mind uh, a lot, um, which is very unnerving. This happened like 11 o'clock last night, so I'm just trying to – I've been praying for them. I'd ask the listening audience to pray for them. And most importantly, Pastor Ron, what uh, type of um, counsel do you believe that the child would need or – just I just want to be able to encourage them and, and let them know they are a saved family. Uh, the child, um, evidently, she, she has said that she has accepted Christ as her Savior, um, you know, born again. And so I, I don't really know how to best uh, help or, or, or if there's anything I can do. And I just wanted to also reiterate your warnings of giving these children access. I mean, this is a child that we would have thought never uh, would have been involved in any of this. And so I'll take your answer off the air. Um, I just want to know how best, uh, as a, a fellow sister in Christ, how to support this family. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for your heart. Um, I'll, I'll do the best I can. You know, you, you've broken my heart twice um, for the filth. This young 11-year-old girl uh, has ingested. But 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 when you said that her parents are considering psychological help for her, as a pastor, you have no idea how that breaks my heart. Counseling, psychology is not the answer. Jesus is the answer. So now is the time for parents to repent for allowing their child to have unrestricted access to technology, Um, I know you said it, I'll say it again, when we let our children walk around with computers and access to anything and everything that's out there, um, we're we're giving them the, the weapons to destroy themselves with. And Satan is licking his chops. Now, I know most people won't hear me on this because we've become such a, a, a world of technology. Your children don't need cell phones. They just don't need them. And the peer pressure to get them is enormous. I understand that. I've got granddaughters who are 12 years old. And even more for the girls than for the, for the, the boys. I've got a 14-year-old as well who's a grandson. The pressure on the girls to be like everybody else is overwhelming. When I was with my kids on vacation this year, our 
12-year-old granddaughter said she's 12 now. She was 11 then. Grandpa, would you please convince my mom and dad to get me a cell phone? I said, well, maybe it's best if you don't have one. No, everybody has one. I said, well, why do you need one? And she said, because I want to be like everyone else. And you know what? The parents caved. We're destroying our children with access to technology that will destroy them. In the Song of Solomon, it says three times, do not awaken desire before the time. And that's what we're doing. It is my observation and my firm opinion that girls are going into puberty, having their periods much earlier, because they're accessing sexual information that they're not ready for, and their bodies are adjusting to that. And nobody talks about that. We have girls going through it much earlier than ever before. That's because we're surrounded in this culture by sexual imagery. And we're just not ready for it. And for the parents who say, well, uh, Tanya said that this is a girl you'd never expect anything like this would happen. It'll happen to all of them. We can't resist the temptation when it's said before. So all it takes is one person to show. All it takes is one person to say, look at this. That's part of who we are as fallen humans. We're curious. Imagine Eve looking at that forbidden fruit. And i got to tell you, Paula loves fruit. You should see the, the breakfast she makes. She, she can make breakfast with papaya. Look like a hot fudge sundae. Imagine what it was like for Eve to look at that fruit in a perfect creation. Knowing that she couldn't have it. Even Eve couldn't resist and the enemy was there. Your children won't resist. Not only that, but the kids these days are normally much more advanced with technology than the parents are. And we parents, even if we're trying to do the right thing, well, we put different apps on, we'll monitor their use. It doesn't matter. They can get around it. And even if you think, well, my child's not that advanced with technology, uh, your child is going to school with kids who are. So what we do is we have to supervise. There should be no technology in the home that's secret. No child, and I'm talking even teenagers and, and into high school, no child should be able to go into their bedroom, close the door, and have access to technology. I know that sounds ridiculous in this age, but your kids are killing themselves. The enemy is licking his chops. So please, parents, you're going to stand before God and give account of your stewardship over your son or over your daughter. And pornography on the internet is not just a male problem. The devil is an equal opportunity destroyer. And we need to hold on to our children and protect them and protect them from themselves. It simply isn't necessary for us to cave in and give give them cell phones that are computers. It's just that simple. So, Tanya, that's the best I can do with that. Let me let me also say this. This um, rather than psychological help, first of all, tell the parents that um, th this isn't going to destroy the girl. This is when now she has to, she's made some adult decisions, she's going to make some adult choices. And this is the time that she's got to choose to nurture her faith in the Lord. You know, my granddaughters know this, the words to all of the secular songs, and they don't spend time in their Bibles. This 11-year-old's now got some choices to make. But there needs to be some pastoral help, need to go to their church, explain what's happened, and ask for counseling from a biblical perspective. It's about Jesus. It's not about anything else. 
And her closeness to Jesus is what's going to rescue her. Nothing else will. And unfortunately, the enemy is going to keep bringing those images to mind and to heart. And this 11-year-old needs to learn how to fight. It's now time to understand that she's in a fight. And you can't fight if you don't know how. So she's got to fight. Additionally, the Lord will pour out abundant grace for living in this girl's life. We've got to be better stewards of our kids' future than we've been. We've got to be better stewards of their hearts, the tenderness and the innocence of their hearts than we've been up to now. We've just got to resist the culture that we live in so as to give our children a chance. With all my heart, I believe that kids ought to be naive and innocent as long as they possibly can. That's really hard with access, unfettered access to technology. Tanya, I hope that helps. I'll be praying for this young girl and her family. 340-9585 for your live calls. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program today 340-9585 for your live calls and questions let's go right back to our questions charles writes in and says uh, pastor ron why doesn't the bible ban slavery Charles, the Bible identifies slavery, owning slaves, as wicked behavior. But the Bible also identifies sexual immorality as wicked behavior. You see, the problem is people don't listen to what the Bible says. So it's not that the Bible doesn't ban slavery. The Bible says very clearly, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, I'll read 9 first. It says, the law is not made for righteous men, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with men. Here's the the key. For men-stealers. And that is a Greek word that means slave owners, those who go and take others. And slave owners here are identified in the same sentence with murders of mothers and murders of fathers for the unholy and the profane. God can't be any more clear. And not only that, in that 10th verse, he says, if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. So this is God's word saying this is contrary to the doctrine the Bible teaches. Let me ask you a question, Charles. Do you think even for a moment that if God's word said slavery is evil, using 21st century language, owning slaves will send you to hell, Do you think that would keep people from owning slaves? Slavery has been a fact of life in the world from the very beginning of time. As soon as Adam and Eve fell and the earth was cursed, people began to defy God. So the problem isn't that the Bible doesn't ban it. When the Bible talks about slavery, Old Testament and New, it simply recognizes Uh, the fact of the world at the time the Bible was written. Imagine God giving us a book to live by and not acknowledging that people were enslaved by other men. That's why God is so specific in dealing with his people. Israel in the Old Testament, according to the law, God wanted his people to, to be able to show that the real God The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was different than the false gods in the rest of the world that allowed these horrible things to happen. So the Bible doesn't condone slavery, doesn't permit slavery. All it does, it's like a newspaper article that clearly identifies a situation that was going on in the world. 
This is kind of like when you read that men had multiple wives. Solomon had a thousand women in his life. Well, why does God allow that? Well, God doesn't allow it, but that doesn't keep men from disobeying. So this is very important for us to understand. If we read our Bibles, slavery, owning slaves, is as evil as it could possibly be. And Paul, in the pastoral epistles, writes that to Timothy. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says that in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he equates it with the worst kind of behavior. Murders for mothers and murders for fathers. Murders of, I should say. So Charles, the Bible could, couldn't be any more clear. But it would also be disingenuous if, in fact, Paul, those who lived in New Testament times, didn't deal with the issue as it existed in the time they wrote. Think about this, Charles, for just a moment. In our New Testaments, we have slaves in the Roman Empire. Slaves outnumbered free people four to one. Roman citizenship was very expensive. You could buy it if you were rich enough, or you could be born into it, be born into a house of privilege. But in the ancient world, slaves outnumbered them four to one. Now, as slaves were getting saved, Paul had to teach the slaves how to live in the condition that was real at the time. He could have said, well, if you're a slave, you can run away, be free, because Jesus set us free. But he didn't do that because he knew that would get people killed. So here's what he said. He said, if you're a slave, be a good slave. Honor your owner, especially if he's a believer. And then he chastises the believing owners of slaves to treat them well, to take care of them. He was teaching people how to live and bring Jesus honor and glory. And if we don't understand that, then it's easy to get caught up into this, well, why doesn't the Bible? The Bible couldn't be any more clear. So, Charles, I hope that helps. Here's a question from our email inbox from Anonymous again. It says, why doesn't the Bible mention anything about dinosaurs? Anonymous, it does. It doesn't use the word dinosaurs, but Job chapter 40 what certainly appears to be a brontosaurus is described in Job chapter 41. There is a, a sea creature called Leviathan uh, who certainly sounds like a dragon or a dinosaur of ancient times. Um, dinosaurs, nobody denies that dinosaurs lived. What we deny as Christians is they lived billions or hundreds of millions of years ago. God created animal life at the very beginning. Then on the sixth day he created mankind. Men and animal or men and dinosaurs walked together on this world. After the curse, uh, the dinosaurs, not just dinosaurs, but animals became carnivorous. And there was this natural tension between man and, and, and the animal kingdom. But we have to remember that the flood destroyed all of the living animals except those that were with Noah on the ark. That's what happened to them. Now, evidently, some of the animals, dinosaurs and others, survived. We've got remains in tar pits. We've got dinosaur bones everywhere. The problem is the dating of those bones. The problem is the presumption that dinosaurs lived in a time long before man. That's simply not true. So the Bible does mention two specific monsters we would call dinosaurs. Uh, it would be naive and simplistic to deny that dinosaurs existed. But it's simply a lie to maintain that they existed hundreds of millions of years ago. They walked with man on this world at the same time. Hope that helps. 
340-9585. Here is another anonymous question. Got my share of them today. This one says, does God get angry when we miss church? I ask because it's really hard for me to get up on Sundays and go. Uh, anonymous, uh, I, I'm going to make the assumption that you're a born-again Christian. Um, does God get angry who miss church? The answer is no. Is his heart broken? Yes. And because I don't know you, I'm going to say this and take it personally if the shoe fits it, the spirit convicts. Can you imagine standing before Jesus who died for your sins, who gave you life? Can you imagine standing before him and him saying, well, why weren't you a part of my, my church, my bride? And your answer, well, you know, it's just hard for me to get up on Sunday mornings. This is where you need to really search your heart. It doesn't matter how hard it is to go. Church is a privilege. The Bible is pretty clear again. I keep saying that. Do not forsake the assembling together of the saints. So we get together in church to learn who Jesus is, to be equipped for the work of ministry. And Anonymous, if that's not important enough for you to get up out of the bed on Sunday morning and get involved at the church that you attend, then you really need to examine your heart. Let me say this. You might be a brand new believer and just don't get it. But we have to be obedient. As Christians, obedience is the contract we sign when we say, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. You know, Anonymous, maybe if you... Uh, you don't have to get up early to do this, but when you get up this Sunday morning, I'm going to be teaching um, the first verse and just one verse in Romans chapter 12. This week and next, I'm going to do one verse. This week one, next week two. And Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, let me explain that in Romans, in, in view of everything that God has done for you, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. It is your, King James says, your reasonable service. The NIV says your spiritual act of worship. It's sincere. So let me mention one other thing here. Worship, obedience, is a sacrifice. We have to give God our best, and sometimes it costs Maybe we've got to go to bed a little bit earlier on Saturday night. Maybe we need just to say, I'm going to tough it out and go. But whatever it is, you've agreed with God by calling him Lord. Lord Jesus, that means you can't say no to him. It means that you've got to understand that he's doing that for your best interest. He loves you. He has a plan for you. How are you going to find out if you stay in bed? Laziness is not good. And the enemy of your soul will be there to take advantage of your spiritual laziness if you continue. You know, Romans 12.1 is God saying, look, all of you belongs to me. God saying, I gave everything I had. I gave my son. I emptied the bank of heaven for you. And now all of you belongs to me. And what that means, Anonymous, is that we have to do what he said. And you know how you respond to the answer to this question is in large part going to determine whether you're really his or not. A lot of people say they belong to him, but if you don't want anything to do with church... If the only reason you'd consider going is because God is mad, you don't get it at all. Why wouldn't you go? Because it breaks his heart. The one whose heart was broken by giving his son, watching Jesus die, watching him tortured. How would you explain breaking his heart all over again? It's time to grow up. It's time to discipline yourself. Find a good Bible teaching church. Commit to it. Commit to serving it. Not just commit to going. 
commit to serving, and watch the blessings of God that flow out in your lives. So I hope that gets through Anonymous. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, here is a question from Paul. He says, I often go to two or three different churches to get a fuller experience. Is that something you would recommend? Absolutely not. Now, let me explain why. Uh, in the previous question, Paul, what I said was that we, we have to make a commitment to a church body. I think, and I'm not accusing you of this, Paul, I don't know you. But I think a lot of times people go to different churches to keep them from committing to any of them. You go to church, um, you, you give your time, your talent, your treasure, that means money. Your talent, your time, that means service. It means you care about and pray for the people that are in that church, knowing that they're praying for you and they care about you. Those that you serve shoulder to shoulder with, there'll be a very special connection. But if you maintain sort of a stranger relationship with two or three churches, you're missing the whole point of church. Now, it's fine to listen. And on the, the, the world that we live in, we have access to more Bible teachers and messages. We can learn more things um, without ever leaving our, our home. It's, it's fine to listen It's fine to have other people speaking into your life. But being a part of a healthy local church, a vibrant church, is way too important to minimize. So make a commitment. Again, it's that word. Make a commitment. This is my church. You know, Paul, the one thing I hear a lot at Calvary Chapel, and, and again, this is my only experience. I'm sure this happens everywhere. But I hear so many conversations. People say, I love my church. It doesn't mean they love me. I mean, they do, but I mean, it's not, it's not because of me that they love the church. They love the church because the church is doing what a church does. The body ministering to one another. When you make a commitment to a church, whatever you're going through, there's people in that church body who have already been through it who can help you. There's people that will mourn with you if you need to be mourned with or rejoice with you when great things happen. There are people who can encourage you and strengthen you. And if you forget that, then you're really, really, really missing out. So please make a commitment to a church and get involved. Have a church that you can call your church. And then if you want to go listen to other people occasionally, then feel free to do so. But make a commitment to a church. That's how important it is. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, here's a question from our email inbox from Richard. Did John the Baptist meet or know Jesus before Jesus was baptized? I started reading the book of John, and in John 1.33, uh, it reads that he did not know he was the one. Uh, yeah, he, they knew. They were cousins. Um, now, we don't know. I mean, they, they were separated by um, probably 50 miles or so geographically, uh, their families uh, growing up. Uh, in, in, in a world without cars, uh, you know, that, that wouldn't have been a trip that they would make often. But yes, they knew each other. Um, remember, John was filled with the Spirit from birth. And when Jesus appeared at the Jordan River, he knew he was the one. That's why he baptized them. He said, it's right that I should be baptized by you. And Jesus went through the process, no, do this to fulfill all righteousness. And he did. But at the same time, John was a human. He had doubts. He had misgivings, misperceptions about who the Messiah was and what he'd come to do. But he knew who Jesus was, especially when he was in prison. He didn't expect that's what would happen. And he had doubts. He was human, just like you and I have doubts. And Jesus reassured him that I am the one. 
So yes, he did know uh, who Jesus was. He did not know that he was the Christ until he appeared at the Jordan River to be baptized. Thanks, Richard. I appreciate the question. Here is a question from... I don't want to deal with that one today. Um, Here's a question from Walter. Walter says, My pastor doesn't believe in a literal millennium. Is this something I should consider changing churches over? Uh, Walter, I I have very strong opinions on this, and and so I'll just be very straightforward. Yes, I, I would not sit under the teaching of a man who ignores what the Bible says so clearly and so often. Six times in Revelation chapter 20, six times the thousand years are mentioned. The final mention is when the thousand years are over. Now, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is tripping all over himself to make sure that we get it. A thousand years is a thousand years. And what your pastor is doing is adding to the words of the book of Revelation. There's a stern warning against people who do that. Or subtracting words. And while eschatology is not an essential of our faith, I think proper eschatology, that's a study of the end times, Walter, proper eschatology is vital and essential for a healthy Christian walk, a a flourishing Christian walk. So either Isaiah chapter 60 through the end of the prophecy and the book of Revelation doesn't mean what it says or it does and if you have a pastor who believes that it doesn't mean what it says then he's going to find lots of other things to spiritualize away so I would for sure change churches Uh, I would certainly go talk to him first and explain to him why you're doing it let him know it's not personal but uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth following the Great Tribulation is really a vital part of our faith. We're going to be there ruling and reigning with Jesus. And if he doesn't believe it, how is he going to teach you, prepare you? So I think it is something that we should be concerned about, you should be concerned about. We're inside five minutes, maybe time for one more call, 340-9584. Here is a question from Prissa. A lot of questions about literal interpretation today. This one says, do you believe that people really live for hundreds of years in Genesis? Prissa, absolutely I do. 100% I do. Why? Because the Bible says it. Specific ages are given. Methuselah. 969 years of age, the oldest man who's ever lived. What else could that mean? I mean, if the Bible wanted to generalize, they could say, you know, people lived a very, very, very long time, or they lived hundreds of years. But we're very specific in those genealogies. Why? Because God is establishing the historicity of the book, but he's also establishing the fact that he intended for men to live forever. And even after the initial fall, before the flood, people were living for literally hundreds of years. And because the accumulative effects of sin hadn't destroyed this world yet, the environment was different. That means most would have died very old with full strength. So you got to make a choice. What do you believe? Do you believe what it says or what somebody says about it? And whenever we get questions like this, and Prissa, this is for you and everybody else who doubts the literal nature of God's Word. All I can do is beg you to study it. Get outside your own mind, your own time frame. You know, I'm 66 years old, and I can't imagine living to be 100. But the Bible says that in the millennium, 
An infant will die at 100 years of age. See, it was always God's purpose that man would live forever with him. Now our bodies wear out, but we who are born-again Christians get to live forever with Jesus, just the way God always wanted it. But Prissy, if you throw out the literal interpretation of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you've thrown away your Bible. Every major and essential New Testament doctrine of the New Testament completely falls apart if Genesis 1 through 11 isn't literally true and accurately reported. So please study. Do yourself a favor. Just read it. Ask God to reveal to you the truth. And understand that we don't have to understand how everything happened in order to believe that everything happened. So the answer is yes. I thought I had time for one more question, but I really don't. Um, you know, these, these questions about the, the literal nature of Scripture, um, very important that we wrestle with them. Don't take what I say at face value. Check it out. Be like a Berean. They searched the Scriptures to find out whether these things were true. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they did. Don't listen to what your college professors say. Don't listen to what unsaved skeptics say. Find out for yourself. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, Tanya will be praying for your friend and her daughter. Um, you've been listening to the Word of Santa for Life. Remember, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the Date Day Edition program, and we're in First Samuel chapter 28 tonight. God bless you, Lord willing. I'll be back here tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.